Father, it is in this moment that we bow our hearts to you. And we worship you, Lord, for you are the one who is worthy to be worshipped. And Father, we thank you for that in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem man, to redeem us, Lord, back to yourself. And Father, for that reason, we worship you. We raise a hallelujah. And Father, right now, I just pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that Lord, by the power of your spirit, you would save them. And if there's anyone here today that maybe has been drifting away from you, Lord, that you would bring them back to you today and that they would have a vital relationship with you. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated and welcome. It's great to see you this morning. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Kids, have a great time back in class. Teachers, be nice to the kids, as you always are. (laughs) I usually tell the children to be nice to the teachers, but I thought I'd change it up. Luke chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you, and you can find Luke chapter 1 on page 803 of those black Bibles as we want to just encourage you to follow along to see what God's Word has to say. If you're not careful, if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, we could become numb to the Christmas story. Some of you may be able to testify to that in your own lives. Many of us, if not all of us, know the facts of the incarnation. We know the history of the birth of Christ. We've heard it. Some of us, some of you can repeat it. Yet our familiarity with it can keep us from really sitting in the significance and the massive implications of the incarnation of Jesus. We can overlook the thousands of years of expectation, the fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies, all perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. If we're not careful, we can just give lip service to the importance of Christmas, to where it really no longer impacts how we love others, how we serve others, how we forgive others, how we care for others, how we pray for others, how we worship the Lord. Let me ask you, does the birth of Christ encourage you to hope? Does it deepen your peace no matter what's going on around you? Does it expand your joy? Does it broaden your love for others? Because you understand that the birth of Christ is God breaking into this world to redeem you back to himself. For hundreds of years, the Jewish nation looked forward to God's Messiah. They looked forward with confident hope, with confident expectation to the arrival of God's anointed one. For years, I talked about this last week, for years the prophets had spoken about the Messiah to come and then Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 became the last prophetic word for over 400 years. And then in the fullness of time, 
all of a sudden there's this explosion of angelic activity. We see that in Luke chapter 1. We saw it first happen last week with Gabriel speaking to Zechariah when he was in the holy place of the temple. The fact is, our true hope, our true peace, our true joy is a result of understanding the promised Savior has come. So the big idea of of this message is, and really of this whole season is this. Our hope, our peace, our joy, and our love are all rooted in God's fulfillment of his promise for a Savior. It's all rooted. It's all dependent upon God fulfilling his promise of a Savior. Now last week we looked at the pronouncement of the forerunner as Gabriel went into the holy place and Zechariah was in there making uh, spreading incense and praying to God. Told, told uh, Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth, who were beyond child-rearing ages, would have a child. That John, this, this child, John the Baptist, would be, a, uh, uh, would be a messenger announcing the coming king. And this week, We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, which is the pronouncement of the Savior. But there's one very familiar passage that really becomes the prophecy of this. Like Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6 was a prophecy of the coming coming, uh, uh, messenger, John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 speaks of this coming child. Listen to what it says. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before the birth of Christ, we find that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Speaks of the virgin conception. So, As we look into this message, the first thing that we learn is that this conception of Jesus reminds us. What does it remind us of? That God's timing is perfect. It reminds us that God's timing is perfect. Now when you step back and look at the Old Testament and the people of the Old Testament, you have to wonder if many asked, will the Messiah ever come? I mean, think about it. You've studied the scriptures. You know there's a coming Messiah and you can get impatient. What's taking so long? Shouldn't he be here by now? And you think in the first century that with the Roman occupation, it was like they're just like, bring on the Messiah. And they were looking for what? A conquering king, someone that would destroy Rome and restore Israel. The reality is not much is different today. We could become impatient for the return of Christ because we know Jesus is coming again. In fact, in 2 Peter, I just... This, this passage just kind of hit me this morning, and so I'm going to read it. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We can... We can be really excited about the coming of Christ. 
the second coming of Christ. But the Lord, his desire, and the reason he hasn't come yet is there's still people who need to be saved, that, that all should reach repentance. But then he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away in the roar and the, uh, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here's the point. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Because he's going to come like a thief in the night. And for those of us that are believers, we can be crying out, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. But in the midst, we should be sharing Christ with other people, knowing that the Lord's, the reason he's tearing, the reason he's delaying is that others would come to repentance. But in the first century, they were looking for the coming of Christ. Families would pray for the Messiah. There was great anticipation. If you, if you look in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we see this. After Jesus was born... Notice what it says in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem, this is chapter 2 of Luke. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus... To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. See, it was this child that gave him peace, but he'd been waiting patiently. He says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This child would be the salvation of all those that put their faith and trust in him that you have prepared in the presence of the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people. So this man, Simeon, represented what so many people were waiting for. In fact, drop down to verse 36. He gives us another example. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fast, with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The temple courts were filled with people waiting for the redemption of Israel. They would go up to the temple courts daily, worshiping, waiting for him. There was a great anticipation. And then now we get back to Luke chapter 1. People were waiting for the hope. But we know that God's timing is perfect. In fact, Galatians 4.4, I prayed this. Let me put it up on the screen. But when the fullness of time had come, exact perfect timing of the Lord. When the, when, the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That perfect time, the fullness of time had come. Look at verse 26 of chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name 
was Mary. The sixth month, the sixth month of what, some might ask. It was the sixth month of Elizabeth's conception. She, was, she had the child, John, the Baptist in her. So Gabriel is sent from God. God's greatest missionary goes and, and shares with Mary the fact that she would have a child. God broke into history. He broke into our world to do what? To save those who were in rebellion against him. I think about that often. Before Christ, the Bible tells us we are at enmity with God. We are literally at war with God. We are against God. And yet, he sends his son to save us from the wrath of God. He came to save those who were opposed to him. And what's shocking about this passage is where Gabriel went. He went to Nazareth. It's kind of a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere. How many of you besides my wife have ever heard of Nelson, Nevada? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, it's unanimous. Nobody has. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like Gabriel going to Nelson, Nevada. Nelson, Nevada is kind of a nowhere town in the middle of nowhere. It's in, it's in Nevada, clearly. It's, it's a little town of about 50 people, maybe, down on the Colorado River. It's where my wife was raised. Like, like, why, who, why would, why would Gabriel go to a place like that? It's like, it, it, it would almost be shocking. It's what caused Nathaniel to respond to his brother. He says, like, can anything good come out of Nelson of, or uh, uh, Nazareth? <laughs> well, funny. But Gabriel sent to a girl in this town. And so what do we know about her? Well, we see that she's, she's a small-town girl. She's not an uptown girl. She's a small-town girl. And everybody knew her. There'd be little hope of her ever venturing away from Nazareth. Secondly, we see that she was a virgin. She'd not been with a man. Back, back verse 34 says, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The literal says, since I do not know a man. She would have been anywhere from 12 to 14 years old at that time. Pretty much the betrothal age of those years. I mean, that would make some men a little uncomfortable. And some fathers a little uncomfortable right now. I mean, think if you have a 13 or 14-year-old daughter, like that is the last thing you're thinking. But third, we find out that she's betrothed. What does that word mean? It's, it's, it's an engagement. It's like a formal agreement generally between two fathers who've, who've decided that they want their children to be married. So there's a one-year period of betrothal. One, to make sure that she isn't with child. And they would be apart for that time, and then they would get married. And if one of them would pass away, she would be considered a, a widow. But fourth, we learn... That was she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, Joseph was from the house of David. What's the big deal about that? Well, we know from the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So by the fact that she was betrothed to David and she would, she would be 
with a child who would be the Messiah, he would be the legal father of the Messiah, of Jesus. In fact, we see that in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. It says, when your days are fulfilled, this is speaking of David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you sh- who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David was the promised father of this Messiah. In fact, look at what Revelation 22.16 says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus comes from the line of David, at least legally. So, you read this passage and it's almost like, why would God go to a place like Nazareth? I mean, if man was writing this story, I'm glad he isn't. He would have probably written that Gabriel would have gone to Jerusalem. He would have gone to the high priest's home. He would have gone to his daughter who was well healed. He says, you're beautiful, you're educated, you're privileged. And so God in his perfect timing is going to have you bear the child that will be the Messiah. But yet God went to Mary. So Jesus' conception, first of all, reminds us that God's timing is perfect. Secondly, Jesus' conception reminds us that God's favor is a grace. God's favor is a grace. Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The question many might ask is, why Mary? Was there something special about her? Notice what it says, oh, favored one. That's in the perfect passive. It's a completed action. The subject is being acted upon. It does not speak of anything inherently good about Mary. God has placed his favor on Mary. That word favor, the root of that Greek word is where we get the word grace. God bestowed his grace on Mary. Grace is undeserved kindness. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this passage. He paraphrased it by saying, Oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. God has bestowed grace upon Mary. Now, Gabriel here is not worshiping Mary. Nor did he say that she was full of grace. Some of you who grew up up in the Catholic faith might have repeated that. But Mary is not full of grace. She has grace bestowed upon her. Mary is not a source of grace. Mary is a recipient of grace. That's so important for us to understand. She is not co-redemptrix with Jesus Christ. She is in need of grace like the rest of us. What made her special, and it is, is God chose her to bear a son. 
who became the Messiah. She needed salvation just like we do. Why? Because she has sin just like we do. And that salvation that she received is because of her faith in the Messiah. That's how we receive salvation. In fact, thinking that Mary has grace to dispense is a distortion of the gospel. She is certainly to be honored as the mother of Jesus, but she is not to be worshipped. So notice what it says here, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Emmanuel, listen, when you receive grace, God is with you. The moment you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we see the Lord is with you in a number of places in the Old Testament. In, in uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, we see how uh, um, the Lord says, I will be with you to Joshua as you get ready to go across into the, to the nation. Remember in Judges chapter 6, Gideon, when Gideon was threshing wheat and God said to him, came to him and said, oh, mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And, you know, like... Here, here's Gideon, really a, a nobody, he's just threshing wheat. And he says, oh man of valor. But the key he heard was God is with you. As believers in Jesus Christ, God is with us. He is Emmanuel. Look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled, that's a great understatement, at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. When it says that she was greatly troubled, she was thoroughly stirred up. She was confused. She didn't know what to think. I mean, put yourself in Mary's sandals. I mean, how would you respond? I mean, I love the fact that it says she tried to discern, she tried to understand what was going on here. Notice, though, how grace brings comfort, verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God has bestowed grace on you. There's that word favor again. It's, it's the word charis at this point. It's, it's God has, has bestowed favor upon you. And we know that, that all of a sudden there's comfort in the, know, in the fact that he said, do not fear. See, perfect love casts out fear. But so often... We, even as believers, have fear. Let me ask you, what causes you to fear? For Mary, it was certainly this angel who appears, but it could be health issues. It could be financial issues. It could be raising your children in this culture. It could be a prodigal son or loneliness. The fact is, when when we fear, we need to reflect on God's unmerited grace, on his favor in our lives. And this is what I would encourage you to do. Like when you're going through difficult times, just rest in the goodness of God in your life. And that's what we see Mary starting to do here. Rest in his grace. If you're in Christ, you've received God's favor. And it is God's favor that gives us peace. The Lord is with you, Mary. You no longer need to fear. So the conception of Jesus reminds us, first of all, that God's timing is perfect. Secondly, that God's favor is a grace. But third, we learn God's plans are awesome. I was going to say that they're perfect, and they are. But because they're perfect, they're awesome. 
because they're God's plans. Have you ever been minding your own business, living about your life, and then all of a sudden the plans for your life change like in a moment? That describes the life of this young team. In a moment, everything changes. In fact, look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, Mary, your plans have just changed. I mean, whatever you thought your life was going to be like, it has changed dramatically. Now, I remember when Pam and I moved to Dallas, we moved there for business. Nine months later, after receiving an invitation to go to Christmas Eve service, I heard the, we both heard the gospel for the first time. may have been the first time we really listened to it. And it was only a couple weeks later that we both received Christ. We weren't expecting that. Our lives were dramatically changed in that moment. It was three years later that Pam surrendered to full-time ministry, left our business and said, I'm just going to go up to the church and serve. Six months later, I ended up doing the same thing. Our, our plans changed dramatically. At the time, there was a certain amount of fear, but the fact is, God's plans are perfect, and because of that, they're awesome. And today, we get to be here, but Mary's plans changed. It's a reminder that God is in control. And what we see here is Gabriel has just given to Mary the second prophecy of the New Testament. The first prophecy was, was, was uh, Gabriel telling uh, Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would have a child. And now Gabriel is telling Mary that she's going to be with a child. And that child would be the Messiah. That he would bring salvation to sinners. And, and how do we know that? Because she, he says, you shall call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. And so from the pronouncement of his birth, his name testified to his saving work. In fact, look what Matthew chapter 121 says. When the angel came to Joseph, he said, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Both Mary and Joseph were told that this child would save people from their sins. Jesus is the salvation of God for all who believe. So what he does here is he gives us this description of who Jesus is. Notice in verse 32, it says, he will be great. He will be great. It doesn't say that he'll be a great athlete or a great student. He will just be great. Period. No modifiers. He will be above all and over all. He is great in power. He is great in love. He is great in majesty. He is great in humility. We see that when he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. True greatness is not found in status, but in service. This son would be great. 
But not only would he be great, he's also the son of the most high God. He is son of the most high God. Now, as I'm preparing this message, I'm just trying to think about what it must have been like for Mary as she's hearing this. Like, we know this. We, we, if, if you've been around the church and if you've spent any number of Christmases in the church, you've probably heard these passages. But go back to the first century to this girl in this small little town. Like, trying to comprehend what this all means. He is the son of the most high God. This speaks of his divinity, the fact that he is fully God. He's going to be the second person. He's the second person in the Trinity that he will have the exact nature of his father. Third, we see that he will be given the throne of his father David. He will be given the throne of his father David. We saw that a little bit earlier. In fact, when you look down at verses 32 and 33, you see these three royal words. Reign, um, uh, excuse me, throne, reign, and kingdom. He, he will continue the kingdom of David. He's told that your son will be the king. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Messiah coming from the line of David. Any Jewish girl would have known that truth. And finally... He hears the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7.13, that his kingdom will never end. This was all God, part of God's plan. Now it's unfolding in a perfect moment of time. Mary's probably taking a moment to say, like, who do I tell? What do I say? Will people believe me? Now here's one thing she didn't have to do. She didn't have to have a gender reveal party because she knows it's going to be a son. The fact is, she had known these prophecies, and if she'd known the prophecies, which she most certainly must have, there would have been concern. There was a prophecy that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Not a big deal. That he would be rejected by his own. In fact, he wouldn't, she wouldn't have known how she would have gotten to Bethlehem, but God worked that out. We'll see that in a couple weeks. That he would be rejected by his own, that he would be betrayed by a friend, that he would be accused by false witnesses, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that he would be crucified with transgressors. And all this, she'd be thinking, I just heard what, hey, Mary. You have found favor with God. This child of yours is going to have a very difficult life. And it's a reminder that God's favor is not always easy. But God's favor is always good. It's a reminder that God's plans may not be what we want. But God's plans are perfect. And because God's plans are perfect, they're awesome. So the conception of Jesus reminds us that God's timing is perfect, that God's favor is a grace, that God's plans are awesome. And fourth, that God's power is without limit. We learn that God's power is without limit. So Mary responds to all of this with a very logical question. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the virgin, how will this be since I'm a virgin? 
It's a great question. This was not a lack of faith as we saw Zechariah had in chapter 1, verse 5 through 25. It's a, it's a question of curiosity. And Gabriel responded by pointing to the sovereign work of God. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see the Trinity in that. This child, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, will be empowered by God. The Holy Spirit will come, uh, come over her. Gabriel responded by pointing to the fact that this is a work of God. God chose to break into history through the womb of a virgin. He chose his son to be conceived in a virgin. Why? So that this child would be unique. This is where we learn a very important doctrine. This child would be fully man and fully God. Not 50-50, not partially man, partially God, but fully man and fully God. The answer to how is God himself would do it. The Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High, would take the place of a human father in conception. This child will be the son of God. He will not be the son of Joseph, even though legally he would be the adopted son of Joseph. Now, because he was born of a woman, he's fully man. But because he's born of the Holy Spirit and conceived of the Holy Spirit, he's fully God. This is critical to the gospel. This is critical to Christianity. Because Jesus would take on the sins of mankind. He would live a sinless life through his deity. But he would die a sacrificial death as a man. He would be separated from God. He would be fully God and fully man. He is fully God and fully man. And the nature of Jesus as God and man is the heart of the Christian faith. If anyone denies the deity of Christ, they've denied Jesus. If they deny the humanity of Christ, they've denied Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the incarnation going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which says the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And for those that read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you think the woman doesn't have a seed. This then becomes the revelation of what actually happens. It was the first prophecy that looked forward to the redemption after the fall. That's why Isaiah 7.14 says, the virgin shall conceive. That's why we see in, in Isaiah 9.6, a son will be given. That's, this is the fulfillment of those prophecies. So now just in case Mary's not convinced, Gabriel gives her an example of God's unlimited power. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. 
That had to blow Mary's mind. You mean my cousin, who probably could be like her grandmother or maybe great-grandmother, is with child. And now she's told that this is taking place. And so what Gabriel does is he tells her about God's unlimited power. He says in verse Uh, He says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus tells us, in fact, we see in, in, let me put it up for you, in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus speaks about nothing is impossible with God. He's talking now to his disciples. He says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, he looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. When was the last time you looked at an impossible situation and all you could see was the impossible? And you didn't look beyond what you could see and understand that with God all things are possible. That God is a God who does impossible things. Now, God may choose to heal your sickness, but he may not. God may choose to redeem a relationship, but it may not happen. But he is in the business of doing what is impossible. And here we see God can do the impossible. If God can create the heavens and the earth, if he can hang the stars in the cosmos... He can certainly conceive a child in a woman who's never been with a man. This would truly be a work of God. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, the conception of Jesus reminds us that God's timing is perfect, that his favor is a grace, that his plans are awesome, that his power is without limit. And finally, we learn that God is glorified when we submit to his will. How does she respond? In fact, before I ask, answer that, how do you respond to God's word? How are you at responding to God's word? When God says to go someone and seek forgiveness, do you? When God says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, do you? When God says to serve one another, do you? Notice what it says in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's a picture of complete surrender, of complete submission to the Lord. That word servant, it's the word doulos. It's the, it's, it's the word bondservant. It was the lowest slave. It would be the one that would wash the feet. It was the one that was completely committed to their master. Mary, the mother of Jesus, considered herself a slave to the Lord. Not divine, but blessed because she received God's grace. Just like those of us in Christ. Just like Mary, our hope ultimately is displayed in our submission and our surrender to God. And he ultimately gets the glory. And this is, I think, so important for us because... At Christmas time, we, we come to church and we're going to have probably a lot more people here on Christmas Day. And there are many people that will be just hearing the message. But 
for the church, for those that really call themselves believers in Jesus Christ, Christ followers, we should be completely surrendered and submitted to the word of God. We should be able to say, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. And we know that when that happens, God gets the glory. And that's why Christmas is so important. Because when you fully comprehend the story of Christmas, when you comprehend the incarnation of God's Son, you don't just become numb to the story, but you become rocked by the significance and the implications of the virgin conception. The Son who came, Emmanuel. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And as they do, one of, the, one of the things that I think is so important as we go through this season is that we would be people of incredible worship because we realize that Christmas is a work of God. It, it, it's a picture of the fact that God's timing is perfect that his favor is a grace. If you've received Christ, you have received his favor. That his plans are awesome, that they're perfect. That his power is without limit and that ultimately God is glorified when we submit to him. And, and we want to be people that are known to be followers of Christ. Not just people that identify as Christians but don't live it out. For some of you maybe... This is a call for you to come back to the Lord. Maybe you've wandered from him. Maybe you've just spent time away from him. You're not spending time in the word. You're just maybe coming to church on Sunday and, and just kind of going through the motions. Don't let that be you anymore. Let the implications of the conception of the virgin child change your heart. For those of you that have never received Christ. I would just encourage you to receive Christ today. Father, I thank you for Emmanuel, for God with us, for Jesus who came, who lived, who died and was raised and is now living at your right hand and is coming again soon. Father, we want to be a people that are impacted and rocked by the truth of the incarnation of Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for sending us a rescuer. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.